you to look with me in the book of Nehemiah. And I'm going to cover with you ten prayers. Ten prayers. Now you say, well, we'll be here all day if we do that. Well, no, I'm going to cover one of them. But I'm going to highlight all ten. I just want to map those out for you because one of the things you'll realize is that that's what our brother was, was a real prayer warrior. Now, Thomas K. Beecher, he filled in for his very famous brother, Henry Ward Beecher, at the Plymouth Church in New York City. Now, lots and lots of people came to hear Henry Ward Beecher preach at the Plymouth Church. And on this particular day, nobody knew he was not going to be there. So when Thomas got up, several people stood up and started moving to the aisles, and then they started actually going out of the building. And Thomas held his hand up and said, Stop! Who came here to worship Henry Ward Beecher? You may continue to go out of the building and leave. Those of you who came to worship Almighty God, please take your seat and stay. Now, I appreciate great preaching, and I appreciate somebody that's gifted in sharing. But it is the Lord that we're here for, amen? And it is God that we are to focus on. Now, here's what Nehemiah is going to show you. One of the reasons God called him in this unique position as a king's cupbearer to come and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. I can't help but wonder that in these 70 or 80 years of captivity, if there have not been several people that God spoke to. But because they didn't obey, or they didn't have the heart to go on and do it, we don't read about them. We read about Nehemiah. And I'm going to show you one of the great secrets to Nehemiah's life, why God picked him, why God used him today. It has everything to do with the power of prayer. Nehemiah was a very dependent person upon the Lord. How do I know that? Because there are ten recorded prayers in this incredible book. All of them are prayers of Nehemiah. Isn't that something? Everything God called Nehemiah to do, he realized he was inadequate. He realized he couldn't do it on his own. He realized he didn't have the talent, the ingenuity, the training but he knew that he could take it to God the Father. And at the feet of God the Father, he could have God meet his need. I want to tell you something. When you realize that in your life, God can take you and do anything through a praying soul like that. I want to share something with you. If you read uh, history, and I've been a big fan of, of especially church history, but here is something Thomas Watson wrote it's been a famous statement, but it's so good. He says, prayer delights God's ear. It melts his heart. It opens his hand. God cannot deny a praying soul. Now, I want to tell you something about burdens. Burdens lead us to our knees. Burdens drive us there. That is literally by design by Almighty God to take you from where you are to where you should be. And that is in this submissive spirit of prayer that you take everything in your life to God in prayer. That's exactly what Nehemiah models for us in his book. There are ten separate prayers. I'm going to run you through nine of them, and then I'm going to camp down in one. And I want you to see some of the principles we find there. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'd guide us today in our time 
And this is going to be a really different message because we're going to run through about ten prayers really quick. But Father, we're going to focus on this one that's in chapter one. And we pray that we can really take away from Nehemiah this great secret, that this worship that literally rocked his life. The reason you used him, Lord, he was a man of prayer. And Father, he demonstrates that again and again and again. Lord, show us and rock our lives. And we pray that it would be worship that is just profound. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look with me at these prayers, and you're just going to have to run with me because that's how I'm going to hit them this morning because I just don't have time to cover them all. But I want you to see what a praying soul our brother was. This is one of the reasons God picked him, called him, used him, and he was the one that God used to lead Judah, Israel, to get the job done. Check this out. The first prayer you'll see in chapter 1, it's in verses 4 down to verse 11. We're going to come back to that one, but it's all about repentance. It's about confession of sin. It's about a promise of a covenant success in the purpose or mission that God had called him to do. Second prayer, it's in chapter 2. It's in verse 4 and 5. It reads like this. The king said to me, what is, in, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I and answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if it and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. It's a prayer for favor, isn't it? It's a prayer for success. He knew this figure was so key. King Xerxes, I mean, this man is the king's cupbearer. He's a, a, he's a critical person that he trusts. And so he's asking for God to give favor, to move in the king's heart. And that's exactly what he prays for. King, prayer number three and four. Look at this. Prayer number three and four found in chapter four, and they're in verse four and five, and then again in verse nine. It's a prayer for protection. It's a prayer for protection. Look at the prayer that's in chapter six, verse nine, number the fifth prayer. It's a prayer for perseverance. Perseverance. Sometimes we just need help getting through difficult circumstances, don't we? We need God to kind of move us along and help us. A prayer of perseverance. In chapter 6, verse 9, it says they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. It will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen our hands. Some of you here today, that's what you need to pray. God, strengthen my hands. I, I have things before me. And uh, boy, have you noticed how there's sometimes a voice of intimidation out there? And uh, that's what they were experiencing there. Now here's prayer 6, 7, 8, and 9, and it was a prayer of remembrance. It's repeated four different times, not the same prayer, but a prayer of remembrance, <clears throat> a prayer for blessing. And I'm going to give you a sample of that. Chapter 5, verse 19 reads this way, Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. In that case, he was asking God for a personal blessing on his own life or for just uh, what he was doing, what he was enduring, what he's going through. And then the tenth prayer is the one that's in chapter 13, verse 29. It's a prayer for judgment. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So that was a prayer internally about those that were leading out spiritually in the life of Judah. 
and uh, they were giving this as evidence that uh, they should be judged for that. They're not leading like they should. So here's the worship. I'm going to go back to chapter 1. I want to share with you this first prayer. And I want us to draw some principles from that that we can see how Nehemiah, no matter what was going on, he was a man of prayer. He prayed about everything. Everything that happens in the book of Nehemiah, guess what his response was every single time? His response was, pray about it. Pray about it. And you see him leading out in prayer. And here this tenth principle uh, is found, or this first principle is found in this first chapter. I want you to see that he begins... This worship that changed Nehemiah's world, he began it with a prayer. His prayer started out of his burden, verse 4. Go back to chapter 1, now we're in verse 4, and here it is. The prayer is birthed out of a burden. For some days I mourned, I fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, realistically, let me ask you, what do you, what do you, do when you have a problem? What do you do? What do you personally do? Do you call a friend, text a friend? Do you talk to like a group of people? The Bible does say that in the, mid, in the midst of, of counselors, there's wisdom, right? If you can discern that as you're going through. Um, hey, do you go to the medicine cabinet? Take something that will calm you down. Do you have a drink? Something that's alcoholic. A lot of people deal with things that way, their problems. Do you do something else, another drug? Prescription drugs or maybe it's something that's an illegal drug. Listen, there's all kinds of ways people deal with their issues and their problems. But I want to tell you how God has called all of us to deal with our problems. He really has. He's called us to be prayer partners with him, that we enter into prayer. Nehemiah models for us this person that here's what he does every single time. Something happens, he prays. Every time he prays. That was his solution to everything. God, this is something bigger than me. This is something I don't know what to do with. I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to ask you to do something about this. Do you know that's why Nehemiah is Nehemiah? We have this story in Scripture because he was a man of prayer. He was already in a a circumstance as a servant or slave under King Xerxes, and he may have had a little more status than most people because he's the king's cupbearer, but still, he's a man that, like the other Israelites, they're, they're in bondage. He needed God to do many things for him to be able to play this part. You know, in your life, you will have all kinds of obstacles. You'll have people that uh, are not helpful to you in life. There are, there are going to be things that just uh, happen, and uh, sometimes it's going to seem like accidents, and it's going to seem like there's different stumbling blocks, and it It will be there, and here's how you should handle all those things. First, foremost, go to God in prayer. Why? Because he's the one that can do more than anybody else. Amen? He can always do anything more than anybody else, and I want you to see this. Samuel Chadwick said this, and it's such an awesome quote. 
I pull it off, I pull it out often, and I thought it was appropriate to pull it out today. Listen, here's what he said. He wrote, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. Did you hear that? I think that's prophetic when he wrote that years and years and years ago. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toils. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. See, you're in connection with the Father. You're in the one who really can blow the whole thing up. You're in the one that can change the circumstances. You are in conversation with the one that can make a difference in any and all circumstances and all situations. And sometimes if he doesn't change your circumstance, he changes you. Doesn't he? You've been there? All of a sudden you're not praying like you were praying. You're praying in a new way. You're praying differently now. Why? Because God's changed your heart. Isn't it amazing how that happens? I wish I could understand everything God's done in my life. I I don't. One day I'll understand it all. But I know this. I can always trust him that what he has for me is the absolute best for my life. Amen? Listen to this. I just love that quote by Samuel Chadwick. I I pull it out often. He prays. Now this is so important. He prays according to the book, according to the book, the book of the law. Now, why is that so important? Because here's a really important principle. And we have before us what is, uh, in the NIV text, it, it uses the translation, O Lord, here. But it's really, a, uh, it's, it's a unique form of sharing the name of Yahweh and Jehovah. Uh, a tetra uh, tetra uh, grammation that uh, takes place where it's more really just the initials there of, of Yahweh, the biblical idea of love, personal relationship. Then we read Nehemiah addressing God as the great and awesome God. You hear this profound reverence in the way that he addresses him, the fear of God in his biblical character, who keeps his covenant of love. And that word love there in the Hebrew text is hesed, And hesed is such an interesting term because it has to do with covenant or God's expression of mercy and love given to others and uh, especially to those that are in covenant with him, God's mercy on his people. The point is this, we're praying biblically and that's what we see Nehemiah doing. You know, one of the things I do on Sunday morning is I meet a group of folks over here in the prayer room at 7.30 and you're welcome to come. And at 7.30, we're, we're just in there for a short time. And uh, Joe uh, Carson gets, gets that going over there. And uh, there's several other people, Al Vermillion. And uh, uh, April's almost always in there, uh, Banning. And, uh, and there's some others that come. And Richard and Doris uh, are in there. And I want to tell you something about Doris. If you haven't prayed with Doris, you need to pray with Doris. Amen. Let me tell you what happens. Not only is she a little enthusiastic, and I love that part, and I need that at 7.30 on Sunday morning, you know. I just need that as a little kick up, wake up. I mean, it's better than coffee, man. It's better than coffee. 
But I'm going to tell you something about Doris. She, she has learned the scriptures so well that she prays the scriptures. Now, if you've never been with somebody that prays the scriptures, it's a powerful thing because here's what happens. The scriptures are God on record saying this is the way it is. This is a promise. This is, listen, the way I, the reason I love that so is because, see, God is on record and when you pray the scriptures, you are in agreement with Almighty God because the scriptures say so. So it's really important that we do that and you've got to know the word to know that. And this dear brother, he's doing that in his prayer. He's agreeing with God on things that he knows God already has in his heart for his people Israel. Check this out. We read passages like this and we don't quite know what to do with it. In Psalm 37, 4, we have this statement where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, that's not just a carte blanche to be selfish and just get anything from God you want, is it? If you delight yourself in the Lord, what's happened to your heart? If you delight yourself in the Lord, if you delight yourself in the Lord, then your, your desires are being moved to where? They're being moved, they're being honed to they're the desires that he has. That's why we can read a passage like the book of John, chapter 15. And you'll read this in verse 7. It says, you remain in me and my words remain in you, you shall ask what you wish, and it shall be given to you. You see, it's not this carte blanche formula that you can just live any way you want, be any kind of person you want, but if you'll just have enough faith and believe God, you see that they're missing what's there. If you look at the first 11 verses of John chapter 15, here's what you'll find. You'll find the word abide in me 15, I mean, uh, sorry, 11 times. You'll find it there 11 times. You'll find the phrase, your word in me, there being a command about five or six times. Why is that so important? Because here's what happens. When we align with God in such a fashion, your heart and your mind starts to take on the mind of Christ. Do you follow me? And literally, God is telling us in that domain, in that realm, in that region, here's what can happen. You can come in such agreement with God that you start speaking that which is God-ordained, God-willed. And I want to tell you something. You are an incredible, holy ground when you pray like that. It's powerful, isn't it? And it's something to read those passages and uh, that God has given. And not just a, It's not carte blanche. It's just that he is giving this statement to us that if you delight yourself in me, you can ask what you will and it will be given to you uh, because there's a change in you. You can remain in him, abide in him. Those things will alter your heart where there is this great alignment of your prayers being like that. We read in 1 John chapter 5 that if you don't ask anything, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us and will give that, doesn't he? John chapter 15. Listen to this, or John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Listen to this. It contains a prayer of repentance as well. And here's what we read in verse 6. He intercedes for Israel here. He says, I confess the sins. And notice that he's not talking about the people that sinned and literally became, became the remnant that was there in Jerusalem and the rest were taken, the mass, 90% of them, were taken into captivity. He prays and he confesses the sin as he's one of them. 
we Israelites. Notice that. Sometimes we're very quick to point the finger at somebody else and say, well, that came upon them because of that sinfulness. And listen, sometimes we need to pray even about, listen, listen about legendary sins of our own church. Failures of the past. You're part of the church now, right? You've now joined in the church that's called the Oaks, right? And I'm not saying we have some grand list that is some big long sin list. I'm simply saying a heart that is right can say, we at the Oaks confess our sin to you. I need to pray that as your pastor. Listen to this. He tells us that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122 verse 6. That's an ongoing prayer for all of us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The New Testament instructs us, and you know, today is a day that, that Graham, um, Franklin Graham and many other Christian leaders have asked churches all over the nation that they would take some time in their service, and we're going to do that at the end of our service, to pray for the president. Now, in this particular passage, you'll see where there's very clear evidence that we should pray for the president. It doesn't matter whether you voted for him or you didn't vote for him. I've made this a practice to pray for all the presidents that I have, have had in my, uh, my time of being a, an adult and understanding this scripture. Listen to this. He says in Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says, I urge you then, first of all, that request prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. If anybody ever says, should you pray for everyone? The answer is yes. You should pray for everyone. There's your biblical context. He tells us to pray for everyone. Now notice who's next on the list. God telling us through this writing to young Timothy, the Apostle Paul says this. What does he say? And I want to tell you something. We should always pray for those that are in leadership. He says that prayers, thanksgiving, be made for everyone. Next phrase, for kings. Now, we don't have kings, not well, not too many. There's a few around, around the globe. But we're talking about those that are, have the highest office, those that are presidents, prime ministers. Look at what else it says. And all those in authority that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, I can tell you this, and I'm going to go on record saying it big, loud, and proud, all right? What's going on in Washington needs our prayers. If you can't amen that, something's wrong. We need to be praying for our president, his cabinet. We need to pray for Congress, for the Senate, and also the House. I mean, it just seems like crazy stuff on a daily basis, doesn't it? They need our prayers. I don't know that we've ever been so divided, but it's, uh, we're going to do that today. And I've prayed for ones that I voted for, and I've prayed daily for those that I didn't vote for. In fact, I felt like I even should pray the more uh, because uh, I just had a lot of differences with, with uh, different presidents through the years. Listen to this. It says that he interceded for himself in verse 6 and 7. Notice this, and we should do this in our prayer life too. I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, that they have committed against you. Isn't that something? In the very next verse, he says, we have acted, plural, wickedly. We've acted wickedly. 
And then he defines how that wickedness have taken, taken place. In the Hebrew text, it's the word habal. Habal is a very interesting word because it means that you have offended someone. In this case, we've offended God. That's what sin is, isn't it? We've offended the living God. And he says, he goes on to say, we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. That's how we have not followed the Lord. We did not obey what he has taught us. And Nehemiah says, I, we, confess that. Nehemiah understood this thing about confessing sin. Even if he wasn't a part of it 80 years ago, he is now still part of Israel. And he's saying, we confess this. Interesting play right there. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Then this continues as a prayer of remembrance. Look at verse 8. It tells us down there that he's the God who keeps his covenant of love. Again, it's that word hesed, that loyalty, that covenant. Isn't it something that God in a permanent relationship because Israel were were his people, us in the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ, we are his permanent people. I hope you hear that today with a big heart because we are. Here's what is so wonderful about the God we serve. He is a God that is in covenant with us. And the Bible says he's always faithful and loyal to his people. God's mercy on his people, that's what he's talking about here. He, uh, we don't need to remind him about his wedding vow with, with us. We are in covenant with him, amen? It's so important. Now, we need to be reminded of that. And Sometimes you remind your children that they're your children. Sometimes you remind your husband or wife that you are my wife, you're my husband, and you remind each other of the covenant you're in. You remind each other of those types of things. You remind people that are in your family of promises they've made. But with God, even though they are stated here, God doesn't have to be reminded that he's made promises and that he is a promise keeper. He always keeps his word, doesn't he? If he says it, you can count on it. And notice that that's exactly what's here. Now, I borrowed this from Dr. Everett storms from Canada and I want to tell you something this he has done so much writing about the promises of God and the promises found in the Bible he's one of the the real experts in the field and I wanted to tell you a couple things here that uh, here's something he wrote I found it interesting the holy scriptures contain a grand total of 8,810 promises how do I know that I counted them All my life I have seen various figures quoted to the number of promises in the Bible. The one most generally given is 30,000. Since this was a round number with four zeros in it, I have always been a little suspicious about that. Furthermore, since there there are only 31,101 verses in the Bible, it would mean that there's practically a promise in every verse. I do not guarantee my count is perfect, but it is the most accurate I know of. He is a professor, by the way. Sound like a a, a cocky professor a little bit there? A little bit, huh? So he says his is the most accurate. Well, he's given a lot of his life to this research and studying the Bible about this. Here's what he concluded. He uh, puts the promises and classifications 
of those 8,100 and some promises that he finds in Scripture. So he has stayed through the Bible over and over and over, and this is his count. So let me tell you what he came up with. There are 7,487 promises from God to man. So about 85% of the promises that are in the Bible are from God to man. Isn't that something? And don't you want to count everyone and cash in on it and get on it, get in on it in your life? If it's a promise, he'll keep it. Amen? You meet the condition of the promise, you have it. Watch this. There are 991 instances of one person making another person a promise. So almost 1,000 promises that are in the Bible is one person promising another person something. Then there are 290 promises from man to God. And some of those are foxhole events, and some of those, uh, those of you in the military, you'll know what I meant by that. Some of those, prom- and there are promises made by angels. Most of them are found in the book of Luke, by the way. There are nine promises made by that old liar, the devil. Can you believe any of those? There are nine promises made by the devil. There are two that are made by an evil spirit in the Old Testament. There are two that are made by God the Father to God the Son. You can find them in John 17. And Dr. Storms additionally found that one book in the Bible contains zero promises. It's the book of Titus. No promises in that book of any kind. Ephesians has only six promises And on the other hand, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all had a thousand promises in each book. Isn't that something? God always keeps his promise. Do you believe that? His promises that he makes on every level, does he keep his promises? If you meet the condition of the promise, he will keep the promise. Amen? He really will keep the promise. And the Bible tells us in verse 10, listen to this, they are your servants and your people when you redeem them by your great strength and your mighty hand. Nehemiah, again, speaking of covenant, praying biblically, praying according to those first five books, the Pentateuch of Scripture, and telling them that they have been, that he, they are in continuous covenant with him. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29, and then you go over to chapter 30, verse 1 to 10, you'll see how that God promised that even though they break the covenant, even though they're unfaithful, God will bring them back to the land of promise. And we have seen that fulfillment happen in the life of Israel again and again. And we're watching it happen in this passage where God is getting ready to bring back hundreds into the thousands of thousands of people back to Jerusalem so that Israel can dwell there once again. So finishing up this prayer, he does a prayer of resurgence. And here's what it says in verse 11. Nehemiah asked God for success. He asked, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who was the man? The man was the king. It was King Xerxes that he was under as the king's cupbearer. And it says there at the end of the passage, I was cupbearer to the king. Here's the bottom line. What you just heard this morning, whether you realize it or not, and I want to really drive this home, 
You're looking at a man that was willing, no matter how big the challenge, to be obedient to what God told him to do in his life. Second principle is you're looking at a man that everything that he encountered, he prayed about it. Everything. He was a prayer warrior from the word go. From chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book, Nehemiah has 10 recorded prayers. Event, crisis, problem, prayer. Event, crisis, problem, prayer. Burden, crisis, problem, prayer. Over and over and over. You know what? God took this man who was willing to be obedient. Number two, he was willing to pray and give it to God over and over. God, it's too big for me. Show me what to do. I give it to you. That's what we all need to do in this. You want to be a success in this life? Be a prayer warrior. Above the cross in our prayer room are the words of Jesus that he wants his church to be a house of prayer. I emphasized that a whole lot last year. I'm never going to quit emphasizing that. In fact, I'm getting ready to focus on that heavy again this summer as we go through this series. Why? Because I'm convinced that an obedient servant and a prayerful servant is why you have the story of Nehemiah. Without those two principles, we would have no Nehemiah. He just wouldn't be there. Did God speak to other people? I have no doubt in 80 years he may have spoken to several people. No one else took the assignment. Why? How do we know? Because they're not recorded as being the victor that got the job done and really he let God do it. He just was willing. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Be that person of prayer. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it starts with a very basic prayer of God, I'm a sinner. I need to turn away from my sin and I need to crown Jesus Christ, God's Son, as my Lord and Savior. You can pray that with us here today. Let's all bow our heads. Father, in this place, we ask that you just move in this service. Father, we realize two things from Nehemiah today. He was just willing to obey you. Plain and simple. He just obeyed you. And Lord, through prayer, he continually brought every issue that came before him up to you and gave it to you, and then out of that prayer, God, you moved in his heart. You moved in his life. You moved in Israel's life. You moved in King Xerxes' heart. Father, you moved and you moved and you moved. God, we just pray that you'll move here today in our hearts. May we align to be people that are obedient, whatever you call us to do, and people that are willing to pray about everything. In Jesus' name, amen.